Hello friends, welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today I talk with my friend Dr. Peter Link, a professor at Charleston Southern University. We discuss some of his work on the shape of the Pentateuch, the features of Old Testament narrative, and the joy of reading and teaching the Bible. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome, Pete. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going to chat about reading and teaching the Old Testament and some of the features of biblical narrative. As we get started here, could you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about uh, what you teach in some of your research areas? I'll be glad to. First off, Chad, just thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a it's a real blessing. Uh, yes, I'm I'm Peter Link. I am the uh, professor of Christian studies at Charleston Southern, who focuses on uh, the Old Testament, biblical Hebrew, and uh, hermeneutics. And so, what that means is I've learned how to talk while eighteen-year-olds try to sleep, which is a joke I've stolen from John Selhammer, by the way. Um, but it, it's it really is it's an amazing calling uh, to be here. I. I um, when I was studied under John Selhammer, I became fascinated with the Pentateuch, and it kind of blew my mind uh, because I'd never, you know, I, I'd become a, a Christian later in life, and I had, I, I'd read that stuff several times, and forced myself into reading it literally the first few times, uh, but I didn't know what to to make sense of it as a new believer, how to make heads and tails of all this. So it it really uh, became a, a push. And when I started under Selheimer, of course, light bulbs were going off left and right. And uh, I was trying to figure out a, a dissertation topic. And I really looked at one of my favorite books of his, which is Pentateuch's narrative. And I said, you know, he's not really explained Deuteronomy 29 and 30 very well yet. I mean, he has personally. That's another. But he has it in the book. So I said, you know, I need to, you know, rather than uh, avoiding that, I need to take that. Because if 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 his view of the text is correct. It should show up here in some way. And if it doesn't show up, I'm going to have to seriously rethink how I've been starting to study the Bible. So I began to focus on the end of the Pentateuch, in particular Deuteronomy 29 and 30, um, because I recognized uh, that, uh, you know, being a a former failed screenwriter, uh, the ending of a story is always uh, where an author uh, is taking you. And if we get the ending of the Pentateuch wrong, we're going to get the whole thing wrong. And then as I did that and I focused on that, I came up with some some rhythms and patterns that I thought really helped me not only understand those sections, but really how the whole Bible relates back to them. Um, In particular, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, I came up with a, a paradigm that I call Torah as book. And so the fundamental thing that's happening there is at the end of the Torah, uh, the way that God was with Israel in the past uh, via a person and so forth at Mount Sinai and the Red Sea in particular, that's the paradigm for uh, how he's going to be with his people in a book. And that becomes kind of the centerpiece really of trying to make sense of what is kind of a confusing part of, of the Bible. Uh, 29 30 through 30 brings a lot of clarity to Deuteronomy 32 and 33. And that whole section, those last eight chapters, uh, in my mind, bring a lot of clarity to Deuteronomy, which brings a lot of clarity to the rest of the Pentateuch and drives you all the way back to the beginning of the book, or one might say at the beginning of the movie, which is uh, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So so to me, that's been my interest. And as I began working through Deuteronomy, I became fascinated with the relationships between Moriah and Sinai. Um, and I see a lot of definite connections there. 
I did follow John Salhammer in seeing Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai. For those who don't know, um, many uh, translations in English read uh, God telling Israel to go to the base of the mountain and just kind of parking there. But that doesn't really make sense of the Hebrew text very well. Um, and, and indeed, the, the main essence of that is that Moses is called to bring them on the mountain, but Israel, when they encounter God, um, they don't go on the mountain. And is that moment a uh, sin? Is that moment a moment of disobedience? And that is not saying that Israel is the bad guy of the story at this moment. I mean, they're certainly not the hero any more than we are. But that becomes the vehicle to show the mercy uh, that flows out of the rest of the book. So when I looked at that and I compared it to Mount Moriah, uh, you saw the embedded comparisons between the two prophets, Abraham and Moses, really uh, becoming kind of a center stage, right? Which is uh, Abraham was able to take Isaac in the face of death. And the word, I mean, the word connection is really obvious on the third day and a bunch of other things that happen. And you're like, I know these scenes are connected, but how they're connected is really key. And and over the last couple of years, I've been wrestling with, therefore, um, how the Joseph narrative kind of fills in the gap and make sure that you read Mount Moriah uh, and the way that Abraham approached God in the face of death as far superior to what Israel did. Uh, that, you know, uh, but that's really where I've been spending a lot of a lot of my time and my energy. I feel like if I get those moments right, <laughs> if I get uh, the ending of the Pentateuch right, then the rest of the rest of the Bible fits together extremely well. Um, and that's really helped me uh, in my teaching here. Um, like you and uh, where you are at Cedarville, y'all have a lot of undergraduate students. And um, so you're forced to really uh, take your ideas and, and break them down. So that's kind of the fun for me. I, that's, and that's how I spend most of my time. Um, and uh, to be honest, it's kind of fun. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's that's a wonderful introduction to what you what you do, but also your passion for uh, the text and thinking about uh, the shape of that text. A lot of what you said there, I thought was uh, really helpful, even just beginning with an emphasis, one, on biblical text as a whole, like book level meaning and thinking about the the shape of that. But sometimes the critique of that kind of reading is that it flattens things out. That's right. Um, but the way that you described it is like thinking about the book as a whole allows you to see some of the strategy of, of particular sections. So like the end of Deuteronomy, um, mm. thinking about the way that that functions, not just for Moses's speech there in Deuteronomy, but how it has uh, connections and, and impacts our reading of the rest of the book. Um, one of the things I thought, uh, as you were saying that, something that I've noticed uh, for in particular, as later biblical authors appropriate or allude back to Old Testament narrative, in particular, something like the book of Hebrews, who is drawing on Sinai and making some of these uh, big picture, big, large scale connections. But oftentimes that reflection on Sinai comes through the end of Deuteronomy, um, that reading of the of the Pentateuch as a whole, you can you can pick up that strategy of reading by later biblical authors as well as they're reflecting on the events of the Mosaic Covenant through texts that have, are, are also reflecting on uh, those same those same events and those same texts. So that's, that's right. as you mentioned, it's exciting for students, of course, to start seeing some of those connections, but it's also just a function of how God has designed the scriptures and as the biblical authors have 
made these connections, this is oftentimes where we are convinced of the coherence of the Bible as a whole is seeing some of these these connections. Yeah, so sometimes people see a great disconnect between the Pentateuch and the New Testament. And I know what people mean by that. We all know because you read about the sacrifices and you see the blood and you see, uh, quite frankly, overflowing failure across the Pentateuch. And, and we just feel this great distance from it. But actually, what's amazing to me is is sometimes we've been guided by scholars to see dissonance between the Pentateuch and the New Testament. But when you read the prophets and the writings, the rest of the Old Testament, you'd be hard pressed to say that they, the prophets disagree with the apostles. And because of that, I, I really don't think that the dissonance the, the, and the, the difference is between the Pentateuch and the New Testament or the Pentateuch and the prophets. It's between how we've been talking about reading the Pentateuch. And so uh, what you're going to do, I mean, no one comes to the Pentateuch with a blank slate. Um, so everybody's got some presuppositions. Um, but when you when you look at it closely, you keep finding the, the this affirmation of faith and hope that's future oriented. Um, in fact, the future orientation, of course, that's where Salhammer's work was was very foundational. And I've had several folks disagree with him, but that's OK, uh, where he notices the pattern of narrative poetry epilogue. And so that the poetic seems of the Pentateuch are actually ways that within the writing of the Pentateuch, the writer himself is guiding you and how you should be reading the narratives. So when you read Genesis 49 and Jacob says, y'all gather to me and I'll tell y'all what will meet y'all in the end of the days. Uh, yes, apparently Jacob was a Southerner there. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> but, uh, but it's really key that when he gets to Judah, Judah's story is pulling off the greatest hits of Joseph. Um, and when he does that and you connect it to that phrase in the, in the days it's tied to these poems, you're left with something you have to explain. It's a clear pattern. And the only other time that that phrase shows up in the Pentateuch uh, where it's not a poem is in Deuteronomy 4, 29 and 30, where you have uh, the clarity of what the poems are talking about, which is this is not just the next few years or the consequences of one man. This is a very special time called the end of the days. And what's exciting is once you get that pattern down and you see the future orientation, you're still left with, and, and this is where people, I think, can begin to have good criticism, not of Selhammer, but of how people use Selhammer. You still have to explain Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. You have to explain Israel's time at Mount Sinai, which is most of the book. But I think if people would, would listen carefully, they'd see that relationship between Moriah and Sinai becoming a way that God almost coming close to Israel. I mean, he's really close, but they're not together. We're not, we're not, everything that was promised to Abraham is not happening here, but we get a really close preview of it right there. That one year, which consumes most of the book, is, is the way that Moses informs, or to borrow Paul's language, tutors us about what's coming later and what came earlier in the story. It's the centerpiece of the story for a reason, because it brings man and God together. Um, and there's, there are, there's a lot of observations that flow out of that. But if you can see that it's future oriented, but it's grounding that future orientation in, in, in the very words of the book itself and what happened in that one moment, it's as if Moses, the author, is grabbing everybody and saying, hey, listen, we learned something over one year. And that lesson every person needs to know because you will encounter the face of God when you die. So let me tell you what that's like. And suddenly the lessons of Israel's failures become a way that the author has um, 
really draws us into a story. So when I teach this to undergrads, Chad, I reduce it down to six really um, basic concepts to help them. Number one, I talk about how the Pentateuch is two comparisons. Uh, that is the Adam and Israel. They're both near God and they both by law cannot stay near God. And that becomes the way that we highlight the book's problem, the dilemma that it's addressing. And, and that becomes important because that's the very dilemma the reader's facing. And then we see Moriah and Sinai, we see Abraham and Moses, and we see two possible ways to approach God. And we look at those two possible solutions, one by faith, all right? And we can argue about whether uh, Genesis 22 is about faith, but another time, but, but for, just allow me for today to say that it's faith. And uh, you have law um, showing up at Sinai and everything that flows out of that. Two possible ways. Well, then you move from that to the two patterns that Selhammer brings out, narrative poetry epilogue, which focuses upon eschatology. And then he also noticed this very helpful pattern starting at Exodus 1916, and then at the Golden Calf, and then at uh, Leviticus 10, and then at Leviticus 17, and so forth, all the way to Moses' death, where you suddenly get a covenant with stipulations, with laws. And there's not one time in the Pentateuch where the laws produce faith. They always produce failure. The laws are good, God is good, but the laws fail to be the solution to the book's problem. So what that does is it gives us a focus on ethics. So those are the four uh, first four paradigms. The final two are very helpful. The, the two paradigms are two comparisons, two patterns, and two paradigms. And that those talk about how God approaches us. And that pulls us back to Genesis 1-1 and this distinction between creator and creation. And it embeds in the whole book a question of how will God approach humanity and be good to him. And the way he creates becomes the way that he redeems and saves. It's by his word and spirit. But when he approaches by his word and spirit, he also exiles. And this is where Deuteronomy 29 and 30 was so helpful to me. He exiles so that he can bring humanity back to him. In other words, when I would approach somebody, Chad, I'd just walk up to them and talk to them. But if God just walks up and talks, metaphorically speaking, everybody dies. So the way that he approaches in Adam's story, in Israel's story, and in my life is he approaches by bringing people into exile to discover that idols are only idols because then – in exile, that's the place where we can finally hear God's voice when we learn that idols cannot overcome death. And voila, there you have uh, the, the way to return back to God, which is the heartbeat of Deuteronomy 29.30, the necessity for both exile and return in order for humanity to find life with God. That's the essence of the Pentateuch for me. Yeah, where you started thinking about some of those specific ways of reading the Sinai Covenant um, and the Exodus narrative, even if you don't accept that particular reading, one of the things that it convinces you of is that there are patterns that cut across books mm -hmm. that we sometimes view as discrete and unconnected. Uh, and then once you once you make that, once you bridge that gap, it opens up a whole highway of uh, connections as you you kind of you kind of just gave us a mini master class of reading uh, reading the Pentateuch there I, I like those seeing those connections between uh, the two mountains or uh, the, the the two covenants uh, that are already there uh, in some of these early some of the earliest texts that we have in the Bible seeing those played out across the prophets uh, for example then becomes uh, not only uh, exciting uh, and not only something like novel but something uh, that we've heard before, and a biblical author has already trained us uh, to think about. Yeah, that's right. So one of the ways to think about it um, is the Pentateuch, 
I'm going to make a claim here. M many people will not agree with, but that's okay. I'm used to that. Uh, that the Pentateuch covers every moment of human existence from creation to the final consummation. So where do you see the consummation? In Deuteronomy 33, you have the last of these poems. Deuteronomy 32 shows Israel facing a death like Adam and all the nations. But out of that death in Deuteronomy 33, you see an Israel that reflects the character of this Messiah. And you have the nations there worshiping God as his priest in Deuteronomy 33, 18 and 19. So the ending of the Pentateuch is not the ending of Israel's story in the Torah. It's Adam and Israel's story. And so that I, I tell my students, I said, you may not realize this, but if you're a believer in Jesus, you are described approaching God as his priest in Deuteronomy 33, 18 and 19. And they're like, really? Um, but but what's great about that is then that explains what you see in texts like Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. So the book of Isaiah, I would argue, is doing a lot of things. But at least one of the things it's doing is it's interpreting and exegeting Deuteronomy 32 and 33, these two magnificent poems. And I think m almost all scholars would, would see the connections between Isaiah and Deuteronomy 32. Maybe not on, uh, everyone would agree with me on Deuteronomy 33, but once you see that they're linked in this way, um, it makes a lot of sense. I would say the same thing that Jeremiah is taking this, what I worked on, Deuteronomy 29 and 30, although he worked on it first. And he, uh, um, uh, my comedy is not landing today, at any rate. <laughs> taking Deuteronomy 29:30 and his book is in essence a sermon of 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 what's happening there so these these prophets are really uh, as they relate to the Torah they notice Deuteronomy uh 4:2 and it's 12:32 in the English just 13:1 in in the in the Hebrew and and what they do is they say that when they write their books they can either add to nor cut away what Moses has done there's different models for how people deal with this and that's your area but I would say this, I'd be hard pressed to believe that any biblical author later would believe that he violated those principles. By definition, if you know you're a biblical author, you, you believe that you're consistent with those principles. So you know that there's more books than just the Pentateuch and there's still scripture. So how do you how do you unpack that? Well, that's because the because the Pentateuch covers every moment of human existence. What I think the later biblical authors are doing is they're setting their books inside the Pentateuch. Right. So you see, therefore, not only Isaiah, Jeremiah, but every other biblical book uses the problem that Moses highlights, the human heart, man's death in God's presence. We can't be close to God on our own. And then they come back to the one solution, this guy who's coming, who can actually return us to God and, and, the, it, and brings together all these different images. They are reading their days in light of the Pentateuch and seeing that, that the future hope of the Pentateuch covers their lives as well. And that's what I think, to me at least, allows you to go all the way to the book of Revelation and you still find mm -hmm. yourself wrestling with these basic raw categories. And I don't think you say that you abandon the uniqueness of the rest of the scripture. No, far from it. They're very unique. I mean, not only do you have different languages at work, but every writer, uh, you know, our view of inspiration allows every writer's perspective to, to be alive. But they love using Moses' toolkit. They love using what he did as a way to approach their many problems and issues and to get to the one hope. Right. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, I, the way you laid it out there was very um, clear and helpful as you're thinking about the process by which uh, the believing community uh, in Israel is thinking about uh, scriptures, the prophets uh, and some of the writings as, as things are being written later, thinking about the Pentateuch as the book of Moses, as a, as a entity that is coherent 
um, mm. allows you to see the way that you described it is the criteria for um, what is scripture is not only something that accords with the content or claims of the Pentateuch, but also resonates with its shape and its scope. Um, so sometimes you see a it's biblical good. author not only drawing on the book of Moses, but also doing what Moses did in that book as a, a word of exhortation in Deuteronomy finds mm. a parallel in Psalm 95 uh, or yeah. uh, the book of Hebrews. You know, they're, they're not only drawing on the Pentateuch, they're doing what the Pentateuch is doing. Um, so that sh the shape, so that imitation of biblical authors, not only the allusion to specific texts. I thought the way you uh, drew that out there is, I think, helpful. Yeah, it's fun to consider, and it's also fun to be kind of humble about it because I think these questions are pretty big, and yeah. and there's not it's not like we're going to uncover an old uh, you know VHS tape of of the prophets sitting around figuring out how they wrote their books that, that isn't there. Um, so uh, it, it's fun to think about. It's fun to uh, to really think about kind of the theological and practical implications, because if that's the posture they took the the Pentateuch, that also says something about the kind of posture I have to take not only to the Pentateuch but to all the scriptures, right? If they were so serious about it that they kept, um, you know, bringing back and bringing to life Moses' words, I mean, these are the kind of things that should be happen to us, not only with Moses' words, but Paul's words and Isaiah's words and and uh, John's words, right? So that so that to to be a a a um, someone who's going to the twenty first century and bringing people into the biblical world by how we live our lives through our the proclamation by word and deed, that's already been modeled for us. And that really can make what we're doing not only in Old Testament and Hebrew, but also in hermeneutics, very practical, right? Um, one of the categories I, I, I've really liked in the last few years to help people think about is the narrative world. And biblical authors most certainly have a concept of a narrative world that they believe rightly defines the very world they're walking in. I believe when we are persuaded that the biblical world is the right description of our world, it empowers us to go and to do and to be the people he's called us to be in the particular generation we're in. Yeah, that's really helpful. One of the things I was going to ask you is that kind of is a good transition to this. We've been talking about kind of hermeneutics and literary strategies and compositional uh, techniques for reading uh, Old Testament narratives, seeing what's there, the meaning of the Pentateuch. Uh, but then also you've been kind of talking about teaching and uh, preaching um, this narrative. So as you're thinking, I was going to ask you those questions about more generally the move from hermeneutics to homiletics, uh, right. as you're moving from understanding the text to teaching or proclaiming it, thinking about some general like tips or tricks or, or really just some important reminders when we go to, uh, if I'm a teacher or a preacher, when I go to preach an old Testament narrative, some things that some guardrails that I need to have, so that I don't uh, go into the ditch of just pure principalizing or just moralizing the entire narrative because I want to connect it to a contemporary audience. And I think you've already articulated one of those things that um, I was hoping you would say, which I knew you were going to say, uh, the idea of when you're preaching Old Testament narrative is to not forget to remember the book of Moses and think about what the Pentateuch is doing. And that's going to give you, uh, put you on, a long way down the road towards understanding what the rest of the Bible is doing. So 
remember uh, thinking carefully about what the book of Moses is doing. But like when you're thinking more generally, like teaching and preaching an Old Testament narrative, uh, whereas we're in a con- we're in context that probably most preachers are more at home teaching an epistle uh, line by line, verse by verse. But if you try to go line by line or verse by verse in a narrative, it's going to get squirrely uh, really quickly. Uh, so what are, what are some of those, uh, those things that just come to mind when you think about this area? So it's a great question. And so part of my background is as a failed screenwriter. So I have always been somebody who thinks in the concept of story. Um, and, and in particular, what's wonderful about stories is they not only tell you what happened, uh, a well-written story clarifies uh, what it means. Uh, it's not just a setting, it's a particular message. So when you encounter an Old Testament book, don't presume it was just simply written for those in that day. It is, but if you remember in the Pentateuch itself, he says, keep talking about it. Never, the book of Joel even begins. Hey, I'm going to talk to you about this something, but you better keep talking about it. You ain't going to find it in the past or the present. It's coming in the future. And keep talking about it, right? So there is a sense that uh, when you read a biblical narrative, uh, you have to gain a, a feel for the whole book. You, you, uh, yes, I think you want to put in the in the the sense of its its context across the canon. But when you look at the whole book, you begin to find out what the author's priorities are. In particular, the beginning and the ending of the book, things that are repeated and things that are put side side by side, those become the major kind of simple ways to begin to ask questions as you read because you cannot read a narrative well if you're not willing to ask questions of the narrative. And as you know, when you read biblical narrative in the Old Testament, it seems rather sparse on details at times. And it's kind of hard, but being trained as a screenwriter, uh, you were actually trained to be intentionally sparse with certain details and to only describe those details that were significant so that the production crew could shoot the very thing that the director wanted. Well, I'm not saying that biblical authors were writing screenplays because they weren't, but in that same way, I mean, you have a ton of stories where details are clearly stripped out to generalize the story, to make it more applicable to the reader. Uh, and then you have moments where you've got a thousand details, like uh, the description of the uh, the tabernacle and so forth. So noticing those things and putting them in context, that's really key. I'm going to give you an example. Maybe we'll kind of clarify some of that. So um, not too long ago, the church that I'm a part of, um, we went through the book of, of Joshua, and countless people are terrified to preach through the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, which is the next book we're going to be doing in a little while. Um, because when you read that, there's a couple things that show up. Uh, first off, you have this uh, slaughter of the Canaanites. And uh, as a Christian, your your kind of back goes up, and you're like, well, I, I know that I'm not called to go and slaughter uh, people. So why is this happening here, right? So again, this is where helping to get into the narrative world and to understand the context, the Pentateuch that you've mentioned is helpful. But if you recognize that Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are really one book, you begin to be able to spot patterns across those books as a whole that help you work through those issues. And and, and one of the th- ways that you work through it, for example, is the beginning of Judges actually is explaining how you should have been reading Joshua. And when you read Joshua, guess what it does? And I think you already alluded to this. At the ending of Joshua, just as Moses stood up with speeches, what does Joshua do? 
And so you keep, I've seen this before. This is, this is, uh, you know, um, mo- most people nowadays, they say, well, this is a trope. I don't want to pay attention to this. No, no, no. Biblical repetitions, man. Anything's repeated in the Bible. You get that instinct that's repeated. Pay attention. Um, and, and so that sense of repetition guides you through it. Um, and, and so what, what unfortunately happens, most people, is they're going to read this and they're going to presume that Israel is the good guy. And Joshua and Judges, of course, breaks that. Uh, I don't know anyone who reads that and is going to think that. Now, Joshua is very faithful. Joshua does many things well, and he is called to put the Canaanites to death. But what's interesting, for example, when you get to Jericho, which is the key moment where you see this most laid out, a couple things have happened. Didn't you notice Rahab's story? When Rahab leading into that moment, when what was she doing? She was quoting the Pentateuch. What does that mean? As is before... Uh, Joshua's army comes into the land. God is already at work conquering the land as shown what? In the word of God and spirit of God in your heart. So that's a pattern that you take from the Pentateuch. That's a pattern that you see all over it. And it's showing up in the story. And what it does, it explains to you, hey, maybe God is bringing judgment on the Canaanites so that he might save some of them. Where have I seen that before? All over the book of Exodus. If you go back and look at Exodus, what do you see in Exodus 7, 5? He clarifies the point that he that Israel is going through all these things to save some of the Egyptians. Right. And so as you go through it, it kind of disarms some of your questions because you get more context. At the end of the day, you also have to recognize that um, um, uh, are the are the categories, for example, of the um, uh, es- eschatological categories of the Pentateuch. Are they alive here? And I would argue that what Joshua is doing is Joshua is very faithful. But it does, is he the prophet like Moses? That becomes the pressing question of the book. And the short answer is no, but he's a great picture of him. And so if we will look closely at, at how God spends time with Israel in the land, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, we see that not only are they like Adam and like Israel in the Pentateuch, they're also like us. And uh, that, that begins to help us work through some of those patterns. And of course, in Judges, it's all filled with patterns. Uh, patterns everywhere, and 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 you don't have to, as you say, moralize it and say, well, Samson was uh, an Israelite, so he must be a good guy. Are you kidding? I'm not leaving Samson alone with my sister ever. That just didn't going to happen. My daughters will never meet Samson. Um, but but that will force you to put off perhaps lesser categories and put on better and better questions, and that's part of good reading. And so, if you want to read a narrative well, you have to look at what's repeated, what's put side by side because they create comparisons capture the beginning and the ending, and then ask yourself, what is the problem that the author is, is addressing, and does he propose a solution? Now, whatever you take on the reading of Joshua, Joshua himself is not presented as the solution if you read the book of Joshua by itself. He's certainly not presented that way if you read it with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And in fact, when you finish Judges, of course, what are you crying out for? Because you see this time without Judges, and there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're looking for a king. That king is not David. When you turn to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it's the son of David. And really, so I would argue that you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. When you read them as a whole, suddenly 2 Samuel 7, this person that's promised, who's very different from David and his sons, that becomes the hope and the focal point of the book. Mm-hmm. But we've trained our churches where we're going to read um, at most a chapter a day. And you can't get those big pictures with narrative. You just can't do it. Um, so that's one of the things you got to start reading more and um, um, read it in bigger chunks and uh, make sure you're always pushing back to those things uh, that are most important to the author. Hopefully that, that kind of provides some categories for you there.
Oh yeah, no, that's great. I that you kind of ended on uh, something that I was going to emphasize as well. Is that some of the things that you're talking about are book level or mm -hmm. uh, intracanonical as you're thinking about. So we not only need to read uh, in larger settings or larger chunks, as you said, uh, but also uh, we need to be teaching in larger chunks. Like what is the message of these 15 chapters uh, versus <laughs> what is the re reflection of this uh, the color of this armor or something like that. Um, but 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 just to build on that, because I think you're right. So think about, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist and we Lifeway does a great job in their literature. But if you go and look at their series that walks through these things, you will see, in essence, the message, be like David, be like David, be like David. And then they'll take Second Samuel 11 through 21 and it'll be one lesson and say, well, don't do that. And by the way, they're right. Don't do that. Uh, don't do anything that you see those folks doing in here. But you've got to understand a large part of David's story is while he's been a picture of this guy, he is not the guy. And where that can help us in practical ministry is we need to recognize we may look at the rest of the world and realize how lost they are. But we're still not the guy. Um, they need Jesus. I'm the vehicle to bring them Jesus. I'm the vehicle to pass on that hope to them. And, and once folks see that and they don't reduce it down to, to mere moralisms and mere principles, that they can see this greater conversation about waiting for this person who's going to come, um, then suddenly I, I do think every part of the Old Testament flows together extremely well. Yeah, that's a good transition, too, to uh, the different contexts in which the understanding of the Old Testament or biblical narrative um, helps us in. We've talked about reading our own Bibles, right. teaching, preaching, but you also just mentioned evangelism as you're thinking about our the, thinking about the narrative world of the Bible. Right. Uh, then forces me to think about my own world. Um, and one of those contexts that um, is sometimes difficult or daunting for believers um, that want to uh, make the scripture central in their own home is uh, family devotions. Um, <laughs> it's much easier. I've, <laughs> this is experiential. It's much easier to take a proverb and just reflect upon it and think about it with my uh, family that ranges from five years old to 13 years old which presents another uh, set of, yeah. of challenges and things. Um, but uh, so thinking about family devotions, um, what, what do you think are some, some, uh, some of the process uh, or some strategies for uh, having uh, family devotions on Old Testaments that include long narratives or narratives that include difficult passages? Right. Um, the, you know, the, the Bible's not <laughs> safe for the whole family in the sense of, you know, uh, <laughs> as you're thinking about, like, would you summarize some of those difficult passages? Would you skip them? You know, as you're thinking about that, what what are some of the ways that you have found uh, to um, value the Old Testament, even in something like family devotions with your children? We've been very intentional on family devotions, but it's been a trial and error process. And the last year and a half, to be honest, because my oldest two are 18 and 17, about to be 19 and 18. And everything we've done before, because they're still living at home, just uh, uh, doesn't work. It's uh, So So what I can do is I can talk to you about it. it's in stages. And the most important thing is, number one, just to keep trying. Hmm. And the more you learn uh, of the scriptures, the easier the whole process becomes. So what I did is... Our first two were boys. So on our one-year anniversary, we had our oldest son. On our two-year anniversary, we had our second son. Um, and um, I actually started reading to them in the womb. I would just read stuff. Of course, they get nothing out of that uh, per se. But I do believe that the word of God does not return void. So I did it anyway. 
Uh, so we're pretty serious about it. But when they were little babies, I would read stuff to them. There's literally no real interaction. It's just the sound of daddy's voice. Uh, but God does work through that, too. Well, we knew we needed to step up our game. And so we moved from children's Bibles and then uh, so forth. But because we had two boys, I, I don't know um, what everybody's experience is, but little boys don't want to sit still. And so family Bible time was either going to be a wrestling match or I'm going to have to find a way for them to be still that doesn't involve that. Right. So we found out the only time they sat still was when they were eating. Mm-hmm. And so I, we just started we made mealtime when daddy would teach the Bible uh, to the kids. And so that became our pattern. And so over the next few years, I developed a, a way where I would teach from um, uh, from Christmas to Easter, New Testament, and from Easter to Christmas, Old Testament. And when I did the Old Testament part, I broke it into three cycles. And what I started off was primarily stories, narratives. I'm not reading Isaiah to a seven-year-old on purpose. Uh, that, didn't get, that doesn't really necessarily help. They got If they get the stories down, though, then we can go through it. So what I would do, for example, I would read through Genesis. And would I dodge difficult text? Well, the Obviously, Genesis 19 with sodomy is is something, but I will say this, especially in today's generation, your children will encounter the concept of sodomy. You cannot avoid that. It is all over the place. Uh, All you got to do is watch the Grammys, for example. It's all over the place. It's unavoidable. I would rather start that discussion and frame it, and that's why I don't hide from those passages. So I go through and I'm reading through Genesis 19. The most terrified I was is I was sitting there with my oldest two children and we had a little little girl too at that point. And we got to Genesis 22 and I said, golly, this is about taking your only son and killing him. How's my son going to take this? I remember walking it through with him and he got it. And I was so, it was such mercy from God because I was like, I could see this really going south. But we preach the text or, or talk through the text. So I would read to them and uh, make sure they're following along, ask them questions along the way. And, and, and so we would do that. So I would do the Torah uh, for one year and I would only do the, nar- the, the narratives. And I kind of say then a bunch of laws come in um, and, you know, and I wouldn't read in detail the genealogies uh, when they're little, especially. And they just get them the idea, you know. People kept going and they had this big family line and people were dying. Right. And so then um, we would do that for a year. Then we would take, in essence, the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. We would do that. And then I would take, in essence, the remaining narratives, the ones from the from the writings. And I would work our way back through those. And um, so you finally get to Esther, Nehemiah, uh, you know, and so forth. Um, uh, Anyway, all that to say, that was our cycle. Um, and it worked really well. Our biggest weakness was um, not enough interaction back from the kids. And so that becomes the thing that if I could go back and talk to myself 10 years ago, I'd say maybe slow down on your pace and and make sure that the kids are actually interacting. Now, they, they've gotten a ton. They're doing great. I, I have no critique of them. Just as I look back on it, things I could have done better because that when they hit those teenage years, um, you know, uh, you can th- their ability to reason and think they need to reason and think they need to go through that process out loud with you. And I've always told the kids and just as I tell my students, ask me the hard questions that you're embarrassed to ask. Ask them anyway and don't be embarrassed about them because they're the text can handle it and your dad will do his best to try to point you back to the text. Um, so w- but it was a really good process. Um, you know, we 
every now and then my, my wife is kind of funny. She'll record some of the family devotions, put them up on Facebook. And when we get to biblical poetry, I would sing those things. Now, I'm a terrible singer. Um, I, I, I grew up in a tradition where the, the service had moments of singing in it. I'll say that. And so I would have a, a kind of rhythm uh, to how I would do it. Um, uh, and it probably betrays the background I was raised in, if, if you ever see those. But it became fun. And, and, and on the better ones, they're clapping their hands with the music. And, and I'm not explaining every moment of the poem. But I am drawing them into the idea, this is a song, right? And then I'll talk about, here's what the song we just sang. What, here's what it meant. Uh, and kind of guide them into that. And so most most fathers and, and mothers for that case, but especially fathers, feel intimidated by that. But if you'll just stay faithful and available, keep growing yourself, you'll find God filling the gaps. You don't have to be the answer man. Uh, you don't have to be the world's greatest scholar. Um, call your kids to do the things that you know are important in the scriptures through the scriptures, not putting the scriptures aside, but bring them into that narrative world. Talk them through um, whatever you, you need to do to help them spend time in God's word, do that. And then, of course, as they get older, you know, get them into the rhythm of reading themselves and them telling you about their own times in God's word. And that's a lot of fun. That, that's the phase we're in right now. But again, I've got it from 18 down to seven. So the poor seven-year-old is getting the short shrift because I'm having to do a, a deal with the, uh, with the older ones. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's Rome isn't built in a day and family devotions are, you just got to keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Uh, it's a battle of attrition. Yeah. Well, and I think the, uh, I, I love the way that you, uh, kind of emphasize some priorities there. Uh, one of the things that I think is so intimidating is that we think that we need to have a single, uh, teaching moment that does it all right and that it goes well um, but the way that you're describing is kind of like a deuteronomy 6 vision of when you wake and when you sleep and when you uh if if that is true that kind of merism of all of life is true then that means yeah. that in those individual instances that's not going to be a full study of the prophetic history it could just be a section of it here a section of it there Right. It's a, it's a it's ten thousand of those conversations, not not one big one. And so my um, a really good job. Becky's a biblical counselor by training. She also went to Southeastern like I did, and she does a really good thing of, of of saying, "Hey, you know what you just did there? Let's think about what you were studying earlier, right? What we we're talking about." And and that's something that she's just God has gifted her in that, and it's helped her to have, quite frankly, a really good biblical relationship with our children. Um, they love turning to their mom. They don't always love turning to dad. <laughs> We're good at that as, as my wife is. But it really is. It, it's, it's wonderful to see. That, but the more you put God's word in your relationship with your kids, God's going to find a way to honor that. Uh, he's going to call you to, to repent. I mean, the number one thing about doing family devotions, if you're not a, a father or mother willing to repent before your kids, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's fruitless, but it will create far more bitterness than you realize. If you're going to live your life with your kids in the gospel, your re genuine repentance, because they're going to know you very well, uh, is, is life-giving. Not only does it give them kind of rope when they mess up that they can repent and so forth, but it also lets them see, you know, mom and dad need Jesus too. Mm -hmm. That's where you want them to be. Well, yeah, that was awesome. I, too, the, that's a good, uh, it's a humbling idea, but also a encouraging idea. Um, and the same thing, I think, goes with 
um, textual understanding as um, allowing the family space to ask hard questions about the text. Um, and some of those I'm able to answer uh, and others uh, because children have a sense of a, a good way of like they have a spidey sense of getting to like <laughs> the heart of the most genuine philosophical uh, difficulty that is in a particular text of something like, uh, you know, the the why question, why would God do this? Or um, this is sounds horrible and it makes me sad um, to be able to respond. Yeah, I, that is horrible. And it makes me sad, too, um, as to some of those moments have been um, helpful because it's uh, I think it helps train them to see. Their, their, that whole range of responses to biblical text and uh, the ways that biblical texts are, are hitting at all elements of life as well. Yeah, helps them see that their their emotions and responses to this are sometimes by design. Uh, this is, these texts are supposed to horrify you. These texts are supposed to comfort you. Um, and when you feel those things, you shouldn't repress them, but um, help allow the gospel to um yeah. inform those things so every man woman and child dies and you're supposed to just move on to the next verse and not and not think about it for a second i mean you, if they've heard the verse they should be like wait a second what did you just say dad mm -hmm. and i said does that does that uh, offend you well i guess not no it should it's it's a horrific reality that every human being will encounter god and face the problem of death but here's the good news God's already anticipated this and he's made a way out of it. Right. And our life has to be shaped by making sure that the path to life that we have in Jesus is something that we are living out and passing on to others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. This is a good segue too, to uh, just briefly talking about the, the new book that you just uh, published with your colleague, uh, Ed Gravely, uh, called Bible 101, A Crash Course in Scripture. Uh, yes, with Simon and Schuster or Adams Media. That's correct. Um, yeah, when I already we've already talked about several of the things I was going to ask you about, just some of the connections that you see. One of the things that I thought was really helpful about this particular work is it goes from something that's very basic, like this is the way a Bible works here. The, this is the table of contents, that type of thing, but all the way to some of the connections that we've been talking about. Um, so. I really appreciate that as I was reading through it, I could see, okay, this is a simple explanation, but there's depth here, the way that you were uh, putting together, connecting the prophets to the Pentateuch and things of that nature. Um, so a very helpful resource for someone that has never encountered the Bible before. Yeah. Uh, but also I recognize as well in teaching uh, or explaining, this is a very difficult task to create a or, or produce a accessible but also accurate uh, <laughs> thing because usually sometimes when we make something accessible we lose the accuracy and then when we say do something accurately it's so technical that no one is ever going to want to read it and so <laughs> i recognize that this is a skill um that took quite a bit of effort and expertise to do so i commend you on this i, I really enjoyed reading through it just as uh just as getting that uh, big picture in mind. But as, as you're working through this, just uh, what were some of your favorite parts of the project or either just writing it or does any aspect of the, the process stand out to you? 
Yeah, so I, I think being forced to take, um, you know, every chapter is a thousand words, including the introduction and conclusion. Uh, now, they gave us a little bit of leeway uh, at, at a few moments, but they, they, they held tightly as publishers to that uh, paradigm. And so it really does force you to make a lot of decisions. And I went through multiple drafts, uh, second guessing myself every step of the way, because if you leave out one thing, then the, the claim you make uh, later in that chapter or in a couple chapters later, it's really difficult. And actually, one of the things that helped us with the project, which is counterintuitive, is the particular editor we had had not actually read through the Bible herself. Hmm. So she was asking us, helping us see how would a new person who's never read the Bible, how would they read this? And she would say, is this what you mean? I said, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I mean. Good. Um, so th that to me was fun. But uh, to me, uh, the trying to capture the heart of the Pentateuch, um, if I, I felt like if I got that right, the rest would flow out of that. And part of that is because I see the entire rest of the Old Testament as meditating upon the Torah day and night. Uh, so in the three-part Hebrew canon and various orders of them, um, you're going to begin with Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 uh, for the prophets and the writings. And those position the rest of the Old Testament as a meditation upon it. And so I think we were able to, to, to pull that together reasonably well and to give people categories. Um, in particular, when we got to the writings, it allowed us to fill in some gaps people have about the book of Esther. Um, what do I do with this book that doesn't mention God? And if you set it into the context of the writings, um, all of these books kind of fit together, I think, really well and kind of mutually inform each other in a, in a way that I think uh, respects the integrity of each text, but also says this may not be the only way that they were read together. I mean, you could make arguments on where Proverbs go that night and day, I know. But really, Proverbs leading into Ruth is a really good way to help you think about the ending of Proverbs. Um, so I was excited about moments like that that I think, especially for folks who haven't spent all the hours in seminary and uh, graduate work, we were able to take some, I think, pretty important categories that people miss and to put them in there. Hopefully it was accessible. Uh, there's a couple of moments where I'm saying, I'm not sure I ever got everything I wanted there. But I do think in general, based upon the responses I'm getting, that um, it has helped a lot of people in our church. So Ed and I not only work together uh, here at CSU, we also pastor together at the same church. And uh, so we we have a chance to really kind of uh, leverage uh, how to talk to lay people about these issues kind of uh, all the time. Um, and it's an art. I mean, it is not it's not something that you, you, you know, uh, just magically do. Uh, but I feel pretty good about those aspects to take some. Mm -hmm. I think critical ideas and to make them accessible to the church, uh, I think long-term that, that could be helpful. I do think, you mentioned uh, for somebody who's never read the Bible before, I do think it's a key part of not only evangelism, but discipleship or can be a key part. Um, why, why is that? Well, I would say biblical illiteracy is, I don't want to say it's the number one issue, but it's connected to whatever you think the number one issue is. If you could improve biblical literacy, I think we would find... Um, a lot of the other issues we have in the church getting better, um, but uh, never perfect. I mean, we we have to wait for yeah. the Lord's return for. Them. Yeah, that, I think that's I think that's right. Uh, the, as I was reading through it, I had three three major um, prevailing observations. One is what you articulated, what you were attempting to do. I really think you nailed it. As I I sensed a clear emphasis on the literary beauty and theological depth of the Pentateuch, but then seeing that 
traced out throughout the rest of the the major blocks of the as of the Hebrew Bible and the rest of the Old Testament. Um, some st strategic ways to kind of bring that back there. So I think that 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 was really helpful. Also, second is recognizing the helpfulness of this type of resource. It kind of relates to the discipline of biblical theology, trying to uh, study the study of the whole Bible on its own terms, and that's as a as a legitimate pursuit as an end to in the end in itself. Um, thinking about if we want the big picture of the Bible uh, to be something that we're able to think about or bring to bear on an issue or even uh, the reading of a book, then we need to be able to. Um, do that fast reading um, for some people are able to do that without any guides, but um, we need a lot of us need teachers. Um, and so this to this type of resource, I think, is is helpful for that for someone that has never read the Bible or uh, has just read it in piecemeal. Uh, it's a, a, a way of getting them to be able to to make those connections they wouldn't have normally made. Mm -hmm. And then third, I thought. Um, this is kind of like speaks to the enduring value of the discipline of biblical theology and, you know, kind of a canonical approach uh, to these things is that, so I, I was very familiar with the content of this book, um, you know, teaching it and writing in these areas. But as I read through it, one, it was devotional in the sense of like, you're catching some of the big picture, but also, um, seeing the way that you put this together and then uh, also as uh, your colleague did in the new testament seeing that put together i'm interested in that as how would i teach this how would i explain this and so seeing that uh, is helpful but it's also helping me see some things in the text that either i had neglected or i just didn't see because of the way that you you brought it together in that summary format and making those uh, connections. Because anytime you summarize, it's hermeneutical because you're selecting certain things right. to emphasize, certain things to omit. And so I think that's, it just struck me is that I could say, oh, well, I'm, I'm actually in this profession. I'm teaching and, pre and preaching these uh, texts. And yet a simple resource that puts these things together is still beneficial to me, not only devotionally, but also right. academically, as I'm thinking, what is the meaning of these texts? How do they fit together? Um, and so I just thought that it was a good example of the enduring value of uh, the discipline of biblical theology, reading the text on their own terms. And so I recognize that about what y'all are doing, but also I recognize that the reason that was able to do it at all those levels is because you, you did it really well. Um, so I can definitely sure. commend you on that process for sure. Yeah, it was, it was a fun process. I mean, the project kind of came to us. Um, my Dean actually had, they, they'd approached him. He'd, he'd done a similar book, so they decided that wouldn't work. So he turned it over to us and, and, uh, we, uh, we, we sent some, um, uh, some material to them and they said, this is what we can do. Is this what you want? And uh, it, it it went it went fast, uh, and we put a lot of hours into it. But uh, I I do hope it it does help the church. In the end of the day, um, I mean that that's everything we do, uh, whether it be academics or popular oriented. In some way, I hope that it helps the church to be more faithful. Um, it may take a long time. It may be a small point that nobody interacts with, but it may be something that coalesces a few things for a few people. That's up to the Lord. 
Um, so uh, your, your words are very kind. And I appreciate them. And uh, it, it was a fun project to be a part of. That's for sure. That's good. All right. Usually I like to conclude these by with a more general reflective question. Um, <laughs> we've kind of talked a, bit, a little bit about some of these elements, but you know, as we're looking at the news or just our own lives, there's a lot going on in the world that's discouraging. But what is something that you've experienced or reflected upon recently that gives you hope? Yeah, so the, the greatest part of hope is is not the puppy that my family got last night, um, although that did bring a lot of momentary happiness. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the, the greatest part of hope is just being able to come back to the Pentateuch. Uh, we're doing my Bible reading plan with, with the church. And and just revisiting some of these texts and finding out things that either I had known and forgotten or were brand new to me, uh, particularly for me, Leviticus and Numbers are areas where I feel after reading uh, Michael Morales's theology of Leviticus, I suddenly realized I'm not reading Leviticus as well as I think I am. Um, and so just going back uh, and finding the encouragement about some of the insights I mentioned about approaching God at Moriah and Sinai, I really think a lot of what I see in the text now in Leviticus connects that in a way. Without Michael's work, it wouldn't have done. So that's being an encourager not only to keep interacting in the text, but to keep interacting with other scholars and benefiting from uh, what they do as well. And so I, I've, I found that uh, to be very uh, fruitful for me. Uh, in particular, uh, you know, I, we all know the Day of Atonement is 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 important, but to comparing Moriah and Sinai uh, to the Day of Atonement, uh, that was a great way to to think about how the feast is a kind of a narrative world that you're being brought into through the text, not just through the experience of ancient Israelites, but through the text itself. Um, and I thought uh, that was one of the useful recently one of the things that really just encouraged me, and I said, hey. I, th there may be a lot of things wrong, but this is a in the world. But this is something that I could help me think about. What does it mean uh, for me that I'm going to approach God and just how the imagery that you're then going to see there that's going to go into Hebrews, how all that stuff, it really can uh, help me to face uh, uh, some of the challenging moments. Um, in particular, for me, recognizing, I guess it was my first couple of years of teaching here. Um, I was working through Isaiah for one of my classes, um, and I just realized as I was trying to exercise, you know, like most people who are academics, I, I try to exercise, and then the semester beats me up. Uh, but I, I was out there running in my neighborhood, and it was really dark outside and, and thinking about the stars. And I just remember, because I'd spent so much time that morning thinking about Isaiah, I suddenly began to see just this longing in the book for him to be here and how, how we were one day closer uh, to the face of the king. No matter whether the creation dies or we die, we're one day closer to seeing the face of the king. There is nothing more hopeful than that. And that's what I believe meditating upon the Old Testament, uh, particularly the Torah, ultimately does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very helpful. And just the just the reminder that the fact that the scriptures continue to speak and reveal and give both warning and comfort mm. is a great gift. That's a great gift. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining me today. I, I always talk. I always enjoy talking about biblical texts with you, Pete. So <laughs> much appreciated. You're very kind. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a blessing, and uh, stay warm. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll try for sure. <laughs> <laughs>